You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Imagine the ability to decipher a person's thoughts by observing images of their brain activity. Science is not there yet, but researchers have recently begun employing an extremely powerful new MRI in hopes of someday seeing thoughts. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Chicago is my guest, Dr. Keith Fulborn, Director of the Center for MR Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Thilborn. Thank you very much. You spent 10 years designing and years acquiring the 9.4 Tesla magnet MRI. Can you describe how it is different from most state-of-the-art MRIs? It's a good question because many people believe that we built the largest magnet that currently exists for human imaging just to build the largest magnet. That's actually not true. The reason for building this magnet was to obtain access to signals that we can obtain from the body that tell us about the metabolism of the body. How are signals that tell you about the brain metabolism different than signals from other elements? For example, uh, clinical imaging today done with MRI is based on water and fat proton signals, and we can produce very uh, nice, uh, high-detailed high-contrast images of the body because the body is made up of largely water and fat. We can do this at field strengths that are quite low because of the high concentration of water and fat protons in the body. It turns out that MR signals can be obtained from other elements in the periodic table. We can look at signals from sodium, phosphorus, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and these are actually the elements that really are fundamental to the metabolism that underlies biological systems. The nice thing about this magnet is we can now obtain very high resolution, very high sensitive images based on these elements rather than just being limited to looking at water and fat. So you're getting a picture of the electrical activity in the brain. Can you describe what's going on when neurons fire? How does the enormous magnet capture that activity? The workload of the, of the brain, the electrical activity of the brain, is actually supported by a lot of metabolic uh, pathways that we actually have uh, signals from that we can actually image. An example would be the electrical activity of the brain is associated with the pumping of sodium ions across cell membranes. This is the so-called action potential. Neuron will fire an action potential. And what you have is as the signal moves down the axons of the neuron, you have a change in the sodium concentration across the cell membrane. Now, that movement of sodium across the cell membrane happens spontaneously as the membrane depolarizes but the sodium concentration has to be immediately re-established, and that requires energy. So the sodium pumps, which use up various forms of energy, specifically adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, and that ATP then has to be replaced by oxidative phosphorylation uh, at the level of the mitochondria. And, of course, in order to produce that energy, you have to have oxidation of carbon, and this is basically glycolysis. So, in fact we can look at various parts of the metabolic pathway that support that reestablishment of the sodium concentration across the membrane. In this way, we can actually look directly at the energy required to support the electrical processes happening in the brain. And there are other metabolic pathways that you can track as well, aren't there? Not only is the action potential uh, attributed to the change in sodium concentration as well as other ions, but in fact at the level of the synapses, the transmission of one signal from one cell to another, there is also ion concentration changes that happen as a part of that neurotransmission. 
that also is something that is supported by metabolic pathways that we can actually monitor. You've managed to track a single thought, I want to say, as well as parallel processing? Actually, what we have to do here is to separate out the work that we've been doing at lower field strengths on our, our 3T scanner from the work that we're, being, we're now currently carrying out on the 9.4T scanner. On the 3T scanner, where we can look at a blood flow response to neuronal activity, we've been able to look at single responses of the brain to a single short-duration stimulus. For example, if we flash a light for one second, we can see the response in the brain from that one stimulus. What we've been able to demonstrate is that, in fact, the brain's response to a single stimulus is not always happening in exactly the same way. The functional unit of the brain is a, is a small piece of tissue that's called a column. It's an area about less than a millimeter in diameter that spans the cortical thickness. That functional unit, that column, may or may not respond to a particular stimulus. But because when we flash a light, we always perceive the flash of light, at least one functional unit is actually responding to that stimulus. We've been able to track individual functional units responding to that single short-duration stimulus. That's the beginning of being able to track a single thought. In this case, the thought is a very simple one. Yes, a light appeared. Tracking the single thought, then, is the beginning. We can actually now scale up the complexity of that thought, but still it's a single thought. It may be a single process such as read a sentence and respond to it. And so at that level, we can say we can see the person responding to that particular short-duration stimulus. And are you looking at brain metabolism at that point? Now, that effect we're looking at is actually a blood flow response to the stimulus. Now, what we would like to do is to actually understand how the metabolic pathways support that single process in a single functional unit. Now, that goal is now on the horizon, a few years ago without the 9.4T scanner, we couldn't even begin to think about answering this particular question. But that's our goal, is to get to the stage of looking at the metabolic workload that supports a single stimulus. You're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Keith Fulborn, director of the Center for MR Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Thulborn, what are the implications for medical advances in neurological diseases from the new images that you'll be able to get with the 9.4 Tesla magnetic MRI? It's a very good question because, in fact, the justification for building this machine is that we should impact very clearly on how patients managed. The thought process was that when we could image the brain, we would be able to see how disease processes affect the brain and perhaps be able to intervene. Now, to a certain extent, if you think about what we've been able to do with imaging to date, it's really been to look at changes in anatomy. Now, changes in anatomy are very clearly displayed by current clinical water imaging. However, those anatomic changes are always very late in the course of a disease process. And if we'd like to get to the stage of making the best intervention, providing the best management for patients, we'd like to do it before anatomic changes have taken place. In other words, we'd like to do it earlier in the disease process. And so your images of brain metabolism would provide important clinical information earlier. To look at things earlier in the establishment of a disease, you have to have signals. You have to have a way of looking at the disease process itself. Now, the disease process is not the change in anatomy. It's a change in the metabolism 
that underlies the anatomy. So ultra-high field imaging provides us with now signals that happen that change earlier in the disease process and at a more fundamental level of describing how the disease process is affecting normal metabolism. Could this influence clinical decisions? In many ways, this allows us to direct our therapy at the level of the disease process where it's occurring, where the problem is actually beginning. This would be a fundamental change in the way we approach a treatment of disease because we do it with an understanding of the disease process and design our interventions to affect the or intervene in the disruption of normal metabolism. And I suppose that would make it a, a very good early diagnostic tool. Early diagnosis and for monitoring therapy. Obviously, if we have the wrong therapy, we don't really want to put a patient on long-term therapy until we know that it is actually providing a change in the disease process that is beneficial to the patient. What implications does this have for personalized health care? If you like, I guess I would summarize this as that personalized health care, where you look at the disease process in a specific patient and design a treatment protocol for that patient, you would like to be able to monitor that therapy at a much more fundamental level than asking the patient how they feel. And this sort of imaging, metabolic imaging, is really now tackling the task of providing personalized health care at the level of the metabolism occurring in a specific patient at a specific time in the disease process. How are you going to prioritize what you will study? As a neuroradiologist, my interest is in brain function, although this technology can potentially be used anywhere in the body. Neurological disease is my greatest interest. Also, it turns out that a lot of the disease processes that we're very interested in establishing early diagnosis and early treatment for uh, reside in the brain. An example of the neurodegenerative uh, diseases that you mentioned, it is not very helpful to intervene after many of the neurons are dead. You'd like to intervene before they die so that, in fact, you can maintain the quality of life of the patient. Uh, so neurodegenerative changes are one of the areas that I'm specifically interested in. There is another one which happens to represent a very large area of healthcare costs today, and that's in cerebrovascular disease and stroke. We would like to be able to look at uh, repair processes, and as we see the development of various repair interventions for the brain, then we would like to establish the metabolic underpinnings of that particular intervention. This would be the use of stem cells or the use of tissue transplants for uh, trying to recover function in where it's been lost due to tissue damage from stroke, from traumatic brain injury, and other such diseases. There are so many areas of neurology that you could study. Do you know if other research centers are trying to duplicate your MRI? In fact, we already know this is happening. There is another institution in the United States, that's the University of Minnesota, where Camille Ergebil has a 9.4T magnet, but it's a smaller magnet. It's really designed for non-human primates rather than for humans. That's a 60-centimeter bore magnet. I know that he's been recruited, and I hope Camille doesn't mind me mentioning this. He, he's now been recruited to the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and there uh, he has ordered a 9.4T magnet, uh, remembering that if the uh, technology was available, I'm sure he would have ordered a larger bore magnet or a larger field magnet, given that it's not possible at the present time, then in fact he's ordered a 9.4T human-sized magnet. And we can see that other institutions around the world are already thinking about going to even higher field systems. Denis Le Bahan in Paris is currently engaged in uh, trying to build 
a human-sized magnet that would exceed 10 Tesla. That uh, project is still very much on the uh, drawing board, and he has to deal with the challenges of new materials and very high magnetic fields. So that's going to be a very challenging project for him. What research are you currently working on? Well, my goal is still to look at the metabolic underpinnings of human thought, and we're currently looking at the contribution of sodium, oxygen, carbon, and phosphorus to supporting human brain function. So what we're looking for is a biochemical model of normal human thought. That's uh, in itself is a huge task. There are many technical challenges with taking these various MR signals, turning them into images, and then actually correlating them so that we can actually get a biochemical model. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Keith Fulborn, Director of the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you, Dr. Fulborn. Thank you very much.